Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's July 6th, and I'm your host, Christine Hargis. Healthcare contributor Todd Campbell is calling in as usual. Welcome to the show, Todd. Hi, Christine. How's it going? It's going well, thanks. So, I'm going to make the disclaimer before we get into the show that we are pre-recording this episode, so it's actually last Friday. It's it's July 1st. That's a weird phrase to say, but it is July 1st when we're recording, and a lot of the things that we're going to touch on today involve prices, and prices, as we know, move. So, the numbers that you hear on the show today are reflective of Friday, July 1st. So, uh, first thing that we wanted to talk about, we got a really interesting question from a listener. Doron Pelled from New York City asks, as a follow-up to our May 11th show on Better Buy Battles, we talked about Celgene and Biogen, and Doron wrote in, asking whether Celgene is really a better investment at this time, seeing as how Celgene's pricing seems to reflect its potential already, meaning that it could be more susceptible to a larger decline in case there was a problem with one or more of their future products. And he contrasts that with Biogen, which is cheaper but could have more upside if one of their moonshots comes through. So, uh, as I mentioned, we talked about this on May 11th. Uh, we've also talked about Biogen since then. On June 8th, we covered the failure of one of their key drugs. Todd said it's still a buy after that. The stock took quite a hit. I kind of disagreed. Where do we stand now on Celgene versus Biogen? Todd? First off, let's just start by saying, Awesome. I love it when you know our listeners chime in and ask us questions, and then we can give them feedback. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's so, great to know what's on your mind. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's it's great because it gives us an opportunity to talk about two companies that are very popular with investors in biotechnology, and it kind of contrasts them against one another, and and really dive into okay, if I only have so much money to invest, you know, where do I invest it? You know, if if I if I can't tuck in two different biotechs and I can only tuck in one, should I be looking at the the beaten up one Biogen or should I be looking at one maybe that's less beaten up Celgene? And you know, the the listener mentioned things like P ratios and and trying to determine valuation and then he, he was kind of speculating, well, you know, what if these things that are in the pipeline pan out? And I always, always, always come back in biotechnology to the three P's product pipeline and profit. Those are the three things that you're going to want to be looking at when you're evaluating these two companies and of any other company in the industry. Right. It's one thing to say that they're both good buys and look at the three Ps, but to be able to actually pick one as the better buy, that's pretty important when you're making when you're taking action and trying to build a portfolio. So let's talk a little bit about those P ratios. Um, as follow up to the last episodes, I, I mentioned that Biogen has Gone down pretty substantially, and it looks like it's trading quite cheaply right now. Do you yeah, have the both numbers? of these stocks aren't "quote unquote" expensive. I mean, theoretically, historically, I should say, uh, biotechnology stocks get a premium from investors because uh, they're working on game-changing medicines, um, and and the risk reward is is quite high. I mean, those medicines could fail in clinical trials, or they could go on to become multi-billion-dollar blockbusters. Um, so a lot of times, especially obviously with clinical stage biotechs, you, you focus less attention on the P ratio because there's no E to measure. Um, that's not the case obviously with Biogen and Celgene because they've been around a long time and they both already have really, really strong product franchises that are racking up billions of dollars in sales 
and they're leveraging that to generate out you know, big earnings per share. So yes, you have a situation where you've got Biogen trading at about 15 times trailing 12-month earnings. You've got Celgene trailing about 49 times trailing 12-month earnings. But before you draw any conclusions from that, I want to remind all the listeners that the stock market is a forward-looking instrument. So I tend to focus more attention on the future P-E ratio than I do the past P-E ratio. Yeah, that is a great point. Celgene's actually really helpful in uh, their forward guidance. They actually say that by 2020, this is what we're expecting, and those numbers are $13 a share um, in EPS, which that's a pretty substantial boost. That would mean that the stock is trading today at 7.6 times uh, that number for today's prices. In general, Celgene has historically traded pretty richly. Over the past three years or so, the average forward-looking P for the company was over 20. And today, it stands at just under 17. So, it has been on the decline for years. Right. And, you know, I was looking at numbers today earlier, Christine, too. And, you know, the numbers that that I was I was sourcing out showed a future P uh, over the next 12 months for Biogen of about 12 and for Celgene a little north of 14. In my view, you know, that's not a big difference between the two. Historically, like you said, Celgene trades a little richer, but there's a reason for that. It's been growing more quickly. That is true. And when you look at the the growth numbers for these two, it does look like Celgene is positioned for more growth. Right, twenty point seven percent year over year growth uh, using the last quarter on the top line for Celgene versus six point seven percent year over growth for Biogen. And you know both these companies are growing their earnings by double digit percentages because as their sales increase, they can leverage that against fixed costs, drop more money to the bottom line. So you know investors are typically willing to to pay up a little bit to get faster growth. And with guidance out of Celgene calling for you know you, you talked a little bit about 2020. You know this year uh, they're still talking about very substantial growth. Next year they're talking about even more growth. And by 2020, they're talking about a doubling in sales. So, you know, not many biotech companies give you that kind of insight into the future uh, prospects, um, and that's probably why they're, you know, investors are are bidding it up a little bit more than they would be Biogen. Yeah, I just feel a whole lot more confident with Celgene looking at their future in the next five years or so. They've actually they've laid it out. It's very clear. You don't have a whole lot of guesswork to do. With Biogen, as we've mentioned on the show a few times now, they're kind of relying on some of these moonshots at this point. And they do have very successful drugs on the market, and so some of their value proposition is quite clear. But there are also quite a few pretty large question marks surrounding this company. I mean, we talked about uh, on the May 11th show, Antilingo. And then when we updated you last in June, that drug missed. It missed the mark in trials. The stock tanked. And to me, that indicates that the market is pricing in these moonshots to Biogen's valuation to some extent, which to me makes me a little bit nervous about going forward. They have a couple more really, really intriguing drugs that could be huge that they're working on. But I'd be worried about the potential hit to the company if they don't work out. Right, and, and when you're that's shifting now to the pipeline issue, and you know you start thinking of yourself, okay, well, how de-risked are these pipelines? You know, the biggest needle mover for Biogen would be an Alzheimer's disease drug, but 99% of those drugs that have of Alzheimer's drugs 
in clinical trials have failed. So how de-risked is that? I, not very much so, in my, in my opinion. But if you switch over and you look at cell gene and you say, okay, well, they've got you know, a phase three drug that theoretically could start competing in multiple sclerosis against Biogen that has data expected next year. They've got a Crohn's disease drug with data expected next year. And they've got the potential through a partnership they have with Juno Therapeutics to have another blood cancer drug on the market uh, next year too. So to me, that seems like the pipeline's a little bit more de-risk than it is with Biogen. Which is interesting since that is the more expensive company too. It makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, the final P obviously is profitability. Both these companies have, um, I'll call them rock solid balance sheets. I'm not worried about either one of them. They have plenty of cash, billions of dollars of cash on the books. They generate out massive cash flow. So I think that you really have to decide where do you think these companies will be in three years? Does Celgene have a better chance of orchestrating, you know, its game plan or does Biogen have a better plan uh, or chance of orchestrating its? And, you know, in my view, I, I like both. I can make an argument for owning both of these companies, but if I was going to pick one or the other, it would be Celgene. I totally agree with you there. Yep. So, <laughs> Celgene and Biogen, two huge names in biotech. The next thing we want to talk about is a third of the big names, and it's Gilead Sciences. You hear us talk about this all the time, but we have some new news to share regarding Gilead Sciences. Um, on Tuesday of this week, but last week by the time you're listening to this, Gilead received approval of a really interesting new hepatitis C drug. This was not unexpected. I mean, everybody pretty much had had said the FDA is going to approve this drug. The stock the dr- was still up 4%, <laughs> surprisingly. I know, which is funny, right? I mean, I guess you know, everybody knew the decision was coming on June 28. Uh, everybody expected the FDA to say, yep, we'll approve it. Uh, essentially, what we're talking about here, listeners, is uh, a drug. What, how do we want to refer to this one, Christine? Is it Occluza? I haven't looked it up to see how the. I wish that there were a simple website that pronounced drug names for you. Okay, I'm so gonna listeners go with get on that, but let's call it Fcluza. Uh, yeah, so if anyone knows a resource where I can just watch a video of somebody saying all these drug names, please send it my way. Industryfocus at fool.com. <laughs> right, right. So we'll go with Fcluza for now. So what we're talking about is the first pan genotype hepatitis C therapy that's been approved by the FDA. So all right, what this- is a genotype? Why is that important? Okay, so there are several different types of uh, hepatitis C, and each one is treated a little bit differently. Um, Some are easier to treat, some are more difficult to treat. The six genotypes, the most common is genotype one. That's where these companies, AbbVie, Gilead, Bristol-Myers, and now Merck, compete most heavily for market share in treating the genotype one basket. That represents about 70% of the 2 million or so people in the United States that have hepatitis C. Apcluza is the first drug of this new class of drugs that have hit the market in the last three years that is approved to be used in any genotype, one through six. And that's pretty intriguing because it could have some very big impacts on how market share shapes up for the various participants over the course of the next year. Absolutely. And the company does seem to be positioning this drug specifically in genotypes 2 and 3, which, while not as common as genotype 1, are still pretty prevalent. Genotype 2 is about 15 to 20 percent of hepatitis C patients, and genotype 3 is about 10 to 12 percent. 
So if it can dominate those markets, that's pretty big. Well, one of the biggest questions that was facing management leading up to the approval of this drug was simply, well, how are you going to position this drug in the marketplace so it doesn't steal all, all the, the $19 billion in revenue uh, that you're already generating at, via Savaldi and Harvoni? How, how are you going to launch this drug and not just you know all the market share that was going to Savaldi and Harvoni ends up in this drug and you, do, you get nowhere? Yeah, and, cannibalization is not helpful at all, especially when the price points are very similar. Right, and you've got you've got a situation where you know you're plateauing too in sales. Uh, last quarter, first quarter, you know sales actually dipped a little bit for Gilead Sciences in the indication because competition has gotten a little bit more fierce, and pricing has gotten a little bit more competitive. So, yeah, the the big question was how are you going to position this not to cannibalize? And the way that they've decided to do that is to focus on genotype two and genotype three, which are historically two of the more difficult uh, genotypes uh, to treat. Right now, you usually have to treat with uh, Savaldi plus something like ribavirin or plus Bristol-Myers Declinza. Um, it's, these are not as easily cured, say, as genotype 1. So Harvoni isn't approved for use in these. So you know, if you position you know, Epcluza to genotype 2 and 3, well, then you know, you've got an opportunity to not cannibalize uh, your own drug, but instead to cannibalize Bristol-Myers. And an important point to add there when you're looking at these cocktails of different drugs are that they are each have their own prices. And so you have to add together the price of drug A, B, and C if you're taking three drugs to treat your disease. So then if you look over at Epclusa, which doesn't need, say, a ribavirin, that could actually make it the cheaper option, even though the list price, when you first look at it, which is $74,500 for a 12-week uh, treatment, it actually could be the cheaper option, and pricing is huge in the hepatitis C market. That is what these companies are competing on because the drugs are all very effective. Right, and you have to remember too: the more drugs that you include in a combination therapy, the more risk there are of side effects that may result in a patient discontinuing treatment prior to completing the course. So you could have adherence problems, and as a result, uh, these these combination therapies become less efficacious than say one pill taken a day every day for twelve weeks. Absolutely. That is... And that increases the cost if you have to go back and you have to treat these patients again, right? So I, th I think that Gilead's looking at it and saying, okay, you know, Bristol-Myers is bringing in about $1.6 billion from its hepatitis C drugs. Um, a lot of that is probably coming from, you know, them being prescribed alongside Savaldi in genotype 2 and 3 patients. Maybe we can capture a billion dollars of additional sales by, by targeting that indication. So this is another win for a company that has been very, very successful. And um, you mentioned that we've seen a little bit of a slowdown in hepatitis C. And because of that, this stock is so cheap. I mean, really, the market, is, I think, is tremendously underappreciating Gilead Sciences. I mean, the headline story right now is, oh no, Harvoni sales have fallen 50% year over year in the US. I just am not that concerned about it. I mean, you've got Epclusa coming in now, but even more importantly, there's so much more to this company than just hepatitis C. Oh, yeah. I mean, they got drugs in, in development now for uh, NASH that theoretically could be billion-dollar blockbusters if they pan out. They've also got a very intriguing deal with Galapagos uh, on a late-stage drug that could target autoimmune diseases, which would be potentially huge. I mean, remember, that autoimmune diseases... Uh, that market supports Humira, which is a $14 billion a year drug. So, 
yeah, they, they have revenue drivers that I think are not being appropriately modeled in by investors right now. I think investors are, are focusing too much on you know the flatlining of sales for Hep C. And in my view, the launch of this drug actually not only solidifies you know the the, the market share, but could offer upside to the second half of this year uh, that's not baked into a lot of people's models. Uh, if you're curious about the ratio, they're trading at under seven times trailing earnings. That that is insane. Yeah, I mean that makes them the the by far the cheapest bio, big big cap biotech. So you know I, I think that if you're going to rank the three stocks that we talked about today, um, Gilead Sciences, then Celgene, then Biogen. I completely agree, and I'll just add one more part to the Gilead story: is that they're sitting on twenty one billion dollars in cash on the balance sheet, and they are historically really really smart about acquisitions. They're taking their time; they're being very patient with it. They're using a lot of the money to buy back their own shares because hey, they're really cheap. But I would anticipate some interesting acquisitions going forward that could be total game changers in any of the different disease areas that we've listed. Or a completely new one. Who knows? This is a company that I am really excited about, if you can't hear it in my voice. I think, Todd, you are too. Yeah, I mean, I always like like good management teams, right? Proven management teams. They've been there, they've done that, and they've proven that they know how to uh, protect portfolios and develop new drugs. And, you know, Gilead has definitely done that. Celgene has definitely done that. Absolutely. So, folks listening, if you like the show, uh, leave us a review on iTunes or however you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate the feedback, and it also helps us get a broader reach, get some more listeners, get some more people investing foolishly. As always, the people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!